Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. All right. If you want Ecclesiastes 9 in a nutshell, here it is. Life's not fair, so eat, drink, put on a happy face, because we're all going to die anyway. All right, let's pray. That'd be like the shortest, saddest sermon ever. So here's, here's my struggle with Ecclesiastes. Uh, I'm what you would call more of a glasses half full type of person, right? Which seems to be in contrast with Ecclesiastes. But like, I, I try to stay like positive and upbeat. Like this plays out with like how I interact with people relationally. Uh, Jake sent me uh, this like office quit, uh, clip, I don't know, maybe about a year ago. And he's like, this is you. And it's this moment when Pam Helper is talking about how like uncomfortable she is knowing that people hate her. And she makes this statement and she goes, I'm pretty sure if Al-Qaeda got to know me, they would like me. You know, like that's, and he's like, that's you. Like you're that guy. I am, I am that guy. I'm like optimistic. I'm like, oh, they just met me. I'm sure they would like me. You know, like I'm, I'm that person. Like I'm, I'm optimistic about how much I can get done in a day and like what we can accomplish in a meeting. And so constantly with like the elder team or staff, they'll just kind of roll their eyes as they lay out an agenda and be like, yeah, we're going to get that done in this meeting. Okay, sure. You know. Or if we're like planning an event, right? You know, like you're planning an outdoor event. It's Iowa, right? So you know, like weather happens and, you know, you got to have like a backup plan. But like for me, I'm like, there's no good in sitting here thinking and like worrying about it four or five days ahead of time because Mark Schnackenberg says we're going to get a storm. Like, let's just, let's just see, you know? Because for me, for me, like there's just, there's no point in being pessimistic. I'm like, I'm like, what's the, what's the point? So when Jake proposed a while ago that we should teach Ecclesiastes to the elder team, I'm the guy in the room going, could we cover this in like a day? Like, that'd be great. Like, is anybody else feeling me here? Like, like, could we just teach this in a day and move on to something happier? Here's, here's something though that I've caught this fall that I've never picked up in all my times reading through Ecclesiastes prior to this. The teacher here is not a pessimist. He's just being brutally honest. And that's incredibly refreshing. What he's doing is he's looking into the exact same world that you and I look into every day, and he's pointing out obvious things. Things that people like me would try to ignore. He's pointing them out and calling us to live wisely in light of those things, and we would do well to listen to him. And so what he's going to be brutally honest about today is death. And honestly, guys, it's incredibly refreshing and joy-giving if we have ears to hear it. So here's what I want to do. Right away, early on in this passage, we're going to get into some rough waters. And before we get into those rough waters, we get an anchor in the first part of verse one. We're going to grab onto this anchor bit. We're going to dive off the deep end. We're going to get thrown around a bit by some big waves, and then we'll come back to it. But I want to pick up in verse one. He says this, Indeed, I took all this to heart and explained it all. And if you have a pen, I want you to underline the next words here. He writes, the righteous, the wise, and their works are in God's hands. Are in God's hands. 
I've been a bit musical this whole Ecclesiastes series. So this is the last time I'll be teaching in Ecclesiastes. So I'll give you this one today. Uh, but this one's a bit more of a church classic. You know, last time I, I quoted like Diddy and Notorious B.I.G. We've, we've covered uh, some of the songs for you that loved the 60s and enjoyed them maybe too much. Uh, today, though, is a bit of a church classic. You guys know this one? He's got the whole world in his hands. Can we sing this? He's got the whole world in his hands. 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 He's got the itty bitty babies. You know, like, you know, we can keep going on this one. You're with me. Here's what Jesus said. He goes, that's absolutely true. Because what he said, he said, sparrows, you could buy two for a penny, but not, not one of them falls to the ground apart from my father's hand. So don't be afraid. You're worth far more than sparrows. Like the most insignificant of birds doesn't fall to the ground and become compost with which flowers sprout up and grow. Like that doesn't happen without God's hand being involved. So don't be afraid. You're worth far more than sparrows. Here's the anchor. Like whenever life for you feels like it's starting to drift off course, just know God has you firmly in his hands. Whenever you feel like you're in free fall, God has you firmly in his hands. Whenever darkness is closing in around you and the, the walls are just pressing in from every side, just know this, God has you firmly in his hands. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all and our lives are held firmly in his sovereign hands. So hold on to that anchor because here comes some brutal honesty. Because he says, indeed, I took all this to heart and explained the righteous, the wise, and their works are in God's hands. People don't know whether to expect love or hate. Everything lies ahead of them. Everything is in their future. Here's brutal brutally honest reality number one. Our lives are in God's hands. Yet we don't know if our life will be pleasant or difficult. To expect what feels like love from God or hate from God? We don't know. And would that like question start to naturally rise? Well, where, where is God in this? Does God not know? Does God not care? What did I do to deserve this? And there isn't some cheat code that we can be given that grants us immunity from the harsh realities of life. And anybody who tells you that there is one is lying to you. Our lives are in God's hands, yet we don't know if life will be pleasant or difficult. That's brutally honest reality number one. Here's brutally honest reality number two. Everything is the same for everyone. There is one fate for the righteous and the wicked, for the good and the bad, for the clean and the unclean, for the one who sacrifices and the one who doesn't sacrifice, as it is for the good so also it is for the sinner, as it is for the one who takes an oath, so also for the one who fears an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun. There is one fate for everyone. In addition, the hearts of people are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they will go to the dead. There is one fate for everyone, one destiny. Some of your translations will use that word, some destiny for everyone. 
See, we like to think when it comes to the words like fate and destiny with our lives that we're in control, that we are the masters of our fate, the captains of our souls, right? Famous uh, rah-rah speaker and author, Tony Robbins, who has sold 15 million books and gets paid $300,000 for every speaking engagement, says things like this, it's not what's happening to you now or what has happened to you in the past that determines who you become. Rather, it's your decisions about what to focus on and what things mean to you and what you're going to do about them that will determine your ultimate destiny. You determine your destiny and we eat it up. Here's what the teacher in Ecclesiastes would say, go for it, we're all gonna die anyway. That's our destiny. How many books do you think that would sell? He's true. It's true. He's not lying. You do whatever you want to in life. Good person, bad person, whatever. You do you. It doesn't matter. Everyone has the same destiny. Everyone dies. Death is this great equalizer, and we all have the same fate. And now again, questions start to rise. These questions for God start mounting. How is that fair? If this is true, then why be good? What's the point? Where is the justice in all of this? And the brutal honesty train keeps rolling. Pick up with me now in verse 11. He says this again, I saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, the battle to the strong or the bread to the wise or riches to the discerning or favor to the skillful, rather time and chance happen to all of them. For certainly no one knows his time like fish caught in a cruel net or like birds caught in a trap. So people are trapped in an evil time as it suddenly falls on them. What he's saying there is life is unpredictable and death is indiscriminate. One day you're just walking along, doing life. You're a fish swimming through the stream. You're a bird flying through the air. And all of a sudden, boom, it's over. You could be the fittest, smartest, nicest person in the world. And life can be taken from you like that. No one knows when their time is up. How's that fair? And if you keep reading now to the end of the chapter... He tells this story about this poor wise man who ends up using what God has given him to save a small city from the onslaught of this powerful king. He's the hero and everybody in the city owes their life to this guy. And yet as time went on, no one remembered him. In the future, he would even offer up his wisdom to try to benefit the city once again in other situations and nobody listened to him he was forgotten. Life can be so cruel. Our text ends today with these words. Wisdom is better than the weapons of war, but one sinner can destroy much good. How is that fair? Because the brutally honest answer is it isn't. It isn't. And tucked within like all of this brutal honesty, like sandwiched right between all of these brutally honest truths is an odd comfort and a surprising command. And that's where I want to focus our time today. 
Go to verse four with me. I'm about to give you all an incredible t-shirt design, by the way. He says this, but there is hope for whoever is joined with all the living since a live dog is better than a dead lion. That's what I'm talking about. Like there's the t-shirt right there. Like put that on your t-shirt, put that like above your, your doorpost and slap it on the way out of your house every day as like a rah-rah to yourself. It's better to be a live dog than a dead lion. Because this is not a compliment to dogs, by the way, okay? So at this time, like dogs were a despicable animal. They were viewed as scavengers. And lions, they're, they're the celebrated ones. They're the, the kings of the jungle. And all he's trying to say here is it's better to be alive at the bottom than dead at the top. What does all that mean? Just keep reading. This is verse five. For the living know that they will dead, that they will die, but the dead don't know anything. Here's, here's the odd comfort. All these brutal realities about life and the unpredictable nature of death, though it's inescapable, all of this. The odd comfort in it is he's saying, hey, here's some surprisingly good news. If you're here and you're reading this, if you're hearing what I'm saying this morning, then you're not dead yet. Which means... You can respond to these brutally honest truths and the dead people can't do that. That's why it's better to be a live dog than a dead lion today. We sit in this beautiful moment right now, you and I, <laughs> where you don't know if like the next breath you breathe will be your last, but we sit in this beautiful moment where right now you can hear what I'm saying and respond to this brutally honest truth. You're going to die everyone ends up in the ground at some point. And after that, they can't do anything else. But you sit in a moment right now where you can respond to that reality. You can learn this lesson from history that everybody dies and you can respond rightly. We still have an opportunity right now what are you waiting for? If I could marry this passage of scripture with another passage of scripture, I would take Ecclesiastes 9 and attach it to Luke 13. I don't know if you guys know this story. There's this beautiful moment in the life of ministry of Jesus where he's standing before a big crowd of people. And while he's standing there like teaching them, somebody comes up, I believe they even kind of interrupt him and they inform him. They say, they say Jesus, hey, have you heard about the Galileans? People from his like hometown area. Have you heard about the Galileans that Pilate mixed their blood with their sacrifices? Did you hear about them? Just follow with me because if you have ever wanted to know like what is God's answer to the problem of evil? Like, why do bad things happen to good people? I want to see Jesus answer that question. In the Bible, this is that moment. He's on the spot in front of all of these people and they've just brought an awful situation to him. What is Jesus going to say? These people, they were just worshiping God. And this evil king, this evil godless ruler of their land came in and killed them and it mixed their bloods with their, their sacrifices. Like, Jesus... What do you say about that? What's the point of that? And his response can be a little puzzling. He says this, he says, do you think that these Galileans 
were more sinful than all the other Galileans. And if you don't know this, like, like this, this, like, this will help like kind of turn like the light bulb on for you. Like, what's he, what's he asking? Because in the Jewish mind, they had this concept of, of like the retribution principle. Have you guys ever heard of that? Okay, not very many. So the retribution principle is essentially like the flip side of karma, right? You understand karma, right? Karma is essentially like, if you do good things, good things will happen to you. If you do bad things, bad things will happen to you. You guys get, get karma, right? So the retribution principle flips that around and goes, okay, so if something bad happens to you, then that means you must be a bad person. Or if something good happens to you, then that must mean that you're a good person. That, that was their, their belief structure. So they're kind of reverse engineering this whole tragedy going, yeah, these people must've done something wrong to deserve this, that they would be killed while offering their sacrifices. So pick up with me in Luke 13, verse two, I'll put it on the screen. So Jesus asked that question, right? I just said that to you, right? Do you think that these Galileans were more sinful than all the other Galileans because they suffered these things? This awful tragedy, Jesus, what's the point? He throws this question at them. He says, do you think that there are greater sinners than all the other Galileans? And he says, no. So what's the point then, Jesus? Why do bad things happen? He says, I tell you, unless you repent, you will perish as well. So now then, like, like he, the story continues on though, because now he takes it up a notch. Now he takes their question to him and he flips it around and takes it up a notch. He goes, well, what about, what about those 18 that the tower in Siloam fell on and killed? Do you think that they were more sinful than all the other people that live in Jerusalem? Like now he's moved from like an evil person doing something evil to now he's talking about like an act of God, like a freak situation, freak accident. People just going about life and this tower just indiscriminately falls over and kills 18 of them. Didn't see it coming. What's the point of that? Do you think that they were more sinful than all the other people in Jerusalem? Verse five, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as well. Guys, I won't claim to like know the full heart and mind of our sovereign God, all right? But I know this. I know that in every moment of my life, my life sits, remember the anchor, right? Sits within the sovereign hands of God and he is a good God who works all things together for my good. And if God in his infinite wisdom and goodness sovereignly sends earthquakes and tremors through my world to break my white knuckled grips from these fleeting moments and to lovingly remind me that this world is not my home, that this is not my eternal and beautiful home that he has prepared for me, that I will trust his goodness in that. See, these brutal realities of life, frustrating and unpredictable and cruel as they are, can either cause one of two effects in us. It can either cause us to be angry or they can do what they were supposed to do in us, cause us to repent and trust in the only one who can give us an unshakable hope beyond this world. Does that make sense? These things happen and it's not a reflection of God's hatred for us, but a display of his love and a warning sign for us to respond in this moment 
to the reality of what we see ahead of us and to trust him. It was Martha who was shaken by the tragedy of losing her brother who looked at Jesus and said, Jesus, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Essentially, he's, she's looking at Jesus going, where were you? And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? That would be my question to every person in the room this morning. Do you believe this? That you can either see life as this cruel or sick or twisted joke and death is this thief that will take everything from you or you can see death as a transition from a broken world to a better one. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe? Do you believe this? This chapter is brutally honest about death. It's unavoidable and perhaps just around the corner for you. Here's why this is a gift for us. As the way that we think about death has everything to do with how we go about living our lives. If you believe that death is the end game, that after that, nothing, then the way that you go through life is trying to squeeze every ounce of it out because this is it. For the unbeliever, this is as good as it gets. But if you believe that death isn't the end game, that it's just a, a change of address, right? Where all of a sudden you go from this present world to a place that Jesus has for you that is literally out of this world. For the believer, this is as bad as it gets. And this reality not only changes our future, it actually changes how we live today in a really beautiful way. So I talked about an odd comfort. I want to talk about the surprising command within this text of verse 7 through 10. Surrounded by all of these brutally honest realities, right in the middle of it are these verses. Go, eat your bread with pleasure, drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already accepted your works. He's literally saying, like, God has already ordained the days and events of your life. You sit in his sovereign hands. So let your clothes be white all the time. Never let oil, I think he's talking about essential oils, Never let oil be lacking from your head. Enjoy life with your wife that you love all the days of your fleeting life, which has been given to you under the sun all of your fleeting days. For this is your portion in life and your struggle under the sun. And whatever your hands find to do, do with all your strength because there is no work, planning, knowledge, or wisdom in the grave or in Sheol where you're going. This is... Ironically, in this whole thing, the most urgent command within this chapter is to trust God and enjoy life. I said that when we went through Ecclesiastes 3 as well, right? His mindset toward life is not eat and drink for tomorrow we die. It's trust God and enjoy life. Christian, no one should ever outdo you in joy. Like there shouldn't be a more joyful group of people in the entire planet than Christians, Trust God and enjoy life. 
How does this work though, like practically, Cody, like break this down because it seems like non-Christians have all the fun. We get all the rules in this world, right? So let's, let's talk about this a little bit. Again, I said, right, if you believe that this life is all that there is and death is an end game, right? And you have to squeeze everything out of life, then here's what you have to do then. You put weight on the things around you in your life that they were never meant to carry. You're gonna look at the food you eat, the drinks you drink, the clothes you wear, the essential oils that you put on your head, the wife that you love and the work that you give yourself to. You're gonna look at all of those things and you're gonna put weights on them that they were never meant to carry. Weights that only God can carry. You're gonna ask those things to satisfy you in every way and they cannot do that. You're gonna ask them to give you a happiness that they could never give to you. And food's great, but it wears off. And so does good drink. And your clothes wear out. And your spouse dies. And the things that you worked for crumble. And the essential oil stops smelling or whatever they do. It's momentarily satisfying, but it's fleeting. It's like trying to hold a mist in your hands. Can't do it. But for the believer, for the person that knows that death is just merely a transition, you're able to, to do this beautiful thing. You can, you can keep one eye on the present and one eye on the promise. And it changes everything for you. And you're able to now look at these things that God has given you. Food, drink, essential oils, clothes. I'm overdoing the essential oils thing, aren't I? <laughs> You look at your work, you look at your life, and you, you're able to actually enjoy them because you're able to see them for what they truly are as gifts, as appetizers before the main course, as a foretaste point into something even better. So for example, if I see and expect that my wife is to be the source of my happiness, the main course and the only meal that I get what I will do is I will crush her with a weight of expectations and I will suck all the joy out of her marriage because she's not able to fully satisfy me. I'm not saying that my wife's a disappointment. My wife exceeds all of my expectations, but she could never satisfy me. That's not her fault. She was never meant to. If I saw her as my only source of joy and this life is all that I have, I would suffocate her with expectations. I would crush her under the weight of my dissatisfaction. That isn't her fault. I need God. I need the only one that can satisfy. And when I begin to have, when I have him, then I begin to see my wife as a gift, as what she truly is as a foretaste of something even greater, of a marriage that will never end, even though ours will. Then and only then can I enjoy my wife, the wife that I love, all the fleeting days of my life. As you understand that, like how being able to put one eye in the present and one eye in the promise that ability to see, though, the promise in your future changes the way you live today and actually allows you to live joyful now. I don't know how many times I've heard it said, particularly in the context of like funerals and things like that, where, where believers will just interact with each other and go, I don't know how I would ever get through this if it wasn't for the hope of heaven, right? 
Like how many times have you had that interaction even with your wife or your spouse or you've slammed the door behind you walking away from your wife or spouse being like, I don't know how I'd ever stay committed to that person if it wasn't for the hope of heaven. It's being real. But it's what's before us that gives us joy today. Christian, our brothers and sisters, let no one outjoy us, okay? It's a mission of our church is to help people find their greatest joy in Jesus. We've got a whole city that sits around us, a whole country that sits around us. College and university towns dotting all over the national map. Nations around us all filled with people. Billions and billions of people who are trying to find joy in all of these wrong things. And it's the mission of our lives to help people find their greatest joy in Jesus. They're going to find things and go, oh, I'm happy with that. And I, I got joy in that. It's like, no, no, but, but I want you to find true joy, lasting joy. I want your greatest joy to be in Jesus. No one should outjoy us. So if life gets unpredictable and harsh, does that mean that we should stop living? No. We know the one who holds tomorrow and life can be frustrating. We can try to be that poor wise guy that's trying to use all of our wisdom to make something better. And then one idiot steps into the room and ruins the whole thing. Does that mean that we shouldn't offer up what we have to the world? No, because everything that we do is for the glory of God. See, talking about death, it isn't being pessimistic. It's just being real, right? And if we respond rightly to it, that we trust Christ for salvation, it changes everything. When we trust Christ, who is and was the truest poor wise man, who sat in a city with the onslaught of an awful enemy caving in on every side, what seemed to be this powerful and unstoppable king This king called death storming from every side. It was Jesus, the poor wise man who stood up, offered himself, and saved the whole city. It's Jesus. Being the hero of the story, so many people look at and forget him. They move on. But for those who are able to have ears to hear, to hear the wisdom that he speaks even today through his word, we could find salvation, and not only salvation, you find joy. You find real joy. And that's the good news of Ecclesiastes 9. Can we pray, church? Yeah. Father, I'm so glad that we dove a little deeper in Ecclesiastes 9 today. We didn't just start with a simple summary and go, all right, that sounds awful and move on, Lord. But to see the truth, the beautiful truths that you give us today. And God, I pray that you would do a unique and beautiful work among us, that we would, as a church, be people that would really be marked by finding our greatest joy in you, to stop putting the weight of expectations on all the things of the world that can't satisfy, but to place it squarely on you, who is our joy. And then from there, everything else that we touch and have in life, we see as great gifts. And if you were to take them from us tomorrow, we still hold on to you because you're the greatest gift and our joy remains intact. 
Father, thank you for stepping into the city, stepping into our broken world when we were being attacked on every side and death was the most powerful thing that ruled and reigned. And he brought victory. And while others might forget you and others say they don't care about you, while you offer up your wisdom and most don't have ears to hear, we do, Father. We hear what you're saying this morning. And I pray that you would help us to respond and then to go out into this world and help others find their joy in you. Amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.